0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of
3: NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes, Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
1: On this episode of Newt's World, the Russian aggression against Ukraine is having an impact on global economies. We're seeing the price of oil impact both consumers at the gas pump and industries reliant on gas to transport goods and services. In addition, Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat, accounting for more than 18% of international exports. And in 2019, Russia and Ukraine together exported more than a quarter of the world's wheat, according to the Observatory of Economic Complexity. So what impact will the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have on our global food supply? Joining me to discuss this important topic, I'm really pleased to welcome my good friend and guest, and I might mention fellow ambassador with Callista in Rome, Ambassador Kip Tom. Kip served as the ambassador to the United Nations agencies for food and agriculture in Rome under President Trump. He's a seventh-generation Hoosier farmer from Kosciusko County, Indiana, and the current CEO of Tom Farms. Thank you for joining me. And as you know, we've had remarkable times together in Rome, chatting about ideas. And so, you're one of the people I turned to immediately when this whole issue came up. But I think people like to know a little bit about the history, and your family farm is a pretty serious business. How did the Tom Farms get its start? Your family must have been among the very first to go into Indiana, if you're the seventh generation.
4: We were probably one of the early ones, 1837 is when we actually settled here on the prairies of northern Indiana. But they came from Switzerland and Germany, and they made their trek across from New York, across Pennsylvania, Ohio, with nine children. And I think about that trek and what that must have been like for them in that journey, trying to find the promised land to where they could call home and start their endeavors of farming and raising a family. So traveling with nine children in a covered wagon had to be quite of an experience with a dairy cow in tow and, again, pregnant with another child along the way.
1: I have a hunch the older children were walking along the side of the wagon.
4: (laughs) I'm guessing you're right.
1: You know, I was born in Harrisburg, and one of the great contributions to opening up America was the invention of the Conestoga wagon, that plus the Pennsylvania rifle, where central Pennsylvania is two major contributors to the early opening up of, you know, back when Indiana was the West, long before we went further. You've actively been involved in running the farm, and your parents have had a huge role in it. You also became a major seed producer for Pioneer. How does that whole process work? I think the average American has no idea how sophisticated and how complex the modern agricultural ecosystem is.
4: So we started as a very small family farm, very traditional for the Midwest. You know, maybe a couple hundred acres today We're sizably much larger than that with operations at one time in Argentina and did consulting throughout Latin America. But when we look at what we do today, we produce a lot of value-add products for specific end needs. corn happens to be one of those products. The parent lines may come from Hawaii, they may come from someplace in South America or even Asia, but they'll bring them to us and we will produce them throughout the year's time and turn them back to them, and then they go ahead and market them to farmers. But today we're producing for buyer. We produce a number of their brands and we're one of their larger suppliers.
1: Yeah, I think people don't realize how sophisticated and how valuable the production of modern agriculture and modern seed is, I know the FBI at one point was picking up Chinese agents in Iowa who were literally trying to steal the seeds and take them back to China because they were so dramatically more productive than what the Chinese were currently doing. In a sense, you're the supplier to the farms. That is, your farm creates the material that enables the other farms to have such high yields.
4: Yes, the intellectual property will come from companies like Pioneer or Corteva and Bayer, of course, and they come to people like us to grow them and increase the size of that propagation. So, we'll have male and female varieties and go throughout the year of a lot of extra management practices that take place that's above and beyond that of commercial production and turn it back to them. But it's a very sophisticated process of how they move these seeds around the world, the way they backcross them, and make sure that they have them here on time from the various regions in the world that they're producing them. But again, I still remember my dad talking about when he was born, our corn yields were about 20 bushel per acre in 1928. Today, a year like in 2021, they were nearly 240 bushel per acre. So this is the innovation and the changes. It's given us the ability to feed a hungry world. It's the innovation and science we put into play.
1: In that sense, the extraordinary explosion of productivity in agriculture rivals anything that was done in manufacturing over the same period.
4: Absolutely. And today, when we look at it, we're in the next evolution of agriculture, and that is applying data science to everything we do. Every about 30 square meters has got its own digital fingerprint on a farm like ours, and we apply different practices, maybe a different rate of nitrogen or phosphorus or crop care product to it. So agriculture's changed a lot in the last 10 years, 50 years, and 100 years, obviously.
1: So given all that What is the process by which the rise in oil prices and natural gas prices then gets translated directly into impact on the cost of agriculture?
4: Well, obviously, we're very related, as you just said, to the energy sector. Obviously, our tractors burn fuel. They burn diesel fuel. In fact, I was talking to some of our people budgeting for our fleet and It used to be a year ago, we'd fill up a tractor at the end of the day, and it would cost in around $550, $600. Today, filling that same tractor is going to be close to $1,350, $1,400 to fill it up with fuel. But when we look at the sector that probably is impacted more, I would say, is our fertilizer sector. Natural gas is used in the production of nitrogen. The process was something invented in Germany, the Haber-Bosch process where we converted oxygen or the air above us along with natural gas and we could produce nitrogen. Well, that product alone this year has went up three times in value. But it's really interesting when you look at the chart of the growth in human population around the world and the growth of nitrogen, and they run parallel from about the date of when they started producing nitrogen that way. So civilization today survives and grows on that of the use of nitrogen fertilizer.
1: So... When nitrogen fertilizer becomes more expensive, that then has a throughput to the whole process.
4: Absolutely. So as it becomes more expensive, technologies like we have in the United States, we will use less, but because we're able to manage the way we apply it to the field and put on specific amounts at different times. But when you get a lot of other places in the world, they don't apply it in the same way, and sometimes it's a little wasteful. But you know, we have the system that's going to allow us to afford it this year. But it's still going to be very expensive for us. But when you look around the world, you look the developing nations, a lot of them are not able to afford it. They're not able to get the credit to buy it. And this is where I see our risk is we'll see a decline in the U.S. in production and some other places like Oceania and South America. But when you look across Africa and the Middle East, they just don't have the banking system or the system in agriculture to allow them to afford to buy it to make sure they can have the productivity that they need.
1: I saw some note that India gets I think a third of its fertilizer from Russia. And that they're really worried about the collapse of the whole Indian agricultural economy, which of course has, you know, a billion, four hundred million, people relying on
4: it. Yeah, I understand that India came out with a subsidy to help their farmers afford that nitrogen. I think going into the twenty twenty-two year. I'm hearing subsidies between 20 and 30 billion dollars to help the Indian farmer afford that expensive nitrogen. But the reality is some of them will probably just back away and use less, and we know what that does to productivity.
0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. ETW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. plus. We are the voice of
3: NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville talladega the chicago street course we have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win photo finishes ryan blaney will win the voice of nascar the motor racing network hey this is christina quinn i'm the host of try this the washington post's new series of audio courses the idea behind try this is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours in our first course we learned how to sleep better Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.
1: You're in a unique position. I think people probably don't realize this, but in addition to running a very, very sophisticated farm, that's totally integrated into modern science. You were, and I got to know you because you were the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome. You were accredited in that sense to three different U.N. agencies for food and agriculture, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and the World Food Program. How did that service... Looking worldwide from the UN perspective, how did that change your views about agriculture and about what the U.S. role should be in the world?
4: Well, I went into it when I looked at those different food agencies with a very open mind, and I understood that the World Food Program is the agency that goes out and provides that humanitarian relief around the world where people are unable to access the food to continue to live, to meet their basic nutritional needs. The Food and Agriculture Organization is the agency that is supposed to create resilience and capacity in food systems throughout the developing world. But quite candidly, for nearly three decades, has done little to really support the growth of improvement in resiliency and capacity building. And then we had, of course, EFAD, which offered financing to smallholder farmers across the developing world. But when I look at this, I know the World Food Program is a good example. When I first got the room, Back in 2019, I think the budget was in around $5.5 billion. That's how much they were raising. By the time I left, it was over $8.5 billion is what they needed. And that's what Executive Director Beasley was raising around the world to help fund it. And by the way, America supports 40% of that budget. And Americans are the most philanthropic of any nation in the world per capita. But when I look at their needs today, it's nearly $13.7 billion is what's needed to meet that humanitarian need around the world. And I'll add, 70% of the places they're delivering food aid is in the midst of man-made conflict.
1: And that's an important point, because we're talking about 50 or 60 different small wars that are underway around the world. That people just, you know, we put a lot of attention on Ukraine right now, but there are a lot of places that have long-term vicious conflicts underway writ small and they're not on television and we don't identify with them but as you said that means that it's very hard for a place where people are getting killed to have a stable agricultural system and it's very hard for them to feed the poorest people who get crowded at the margins and very often end up starving to death
4: well we know one thing like the current situation we're in today you know we've got record high food prices we've got high energy prices which is costing us a lot to move this food around the world. We have some climate shocks in a few places. So the cost to deliver this food is it's not able to get to as many places. I spoke to Executive Director Beasley the other day, and he said before Ukraine, the World Food Program is already cutting rations in a lot of places to 50%. 50% of normal nutrition. So that's of the 300 million people, and that's before the Ukrainian invasion occurred from Russia so right now we're basically shutting down ukrainian agriculture production and i really believe this is probably going to be worse than arab spring when we experienced that back in 2010 and 12. like i said we got food shipping costs is going up 750 to a billion dollars i know beasley stated the other day he needs nearly 600 million for ukraine just in the next three months to meet their basic needs so He said to me, where do I take that from? Do I take it from a child in Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia? Do we choose who dies and who lives? They're facing some tough situations here.
1: Well, and it's doubly tragic because you have one of the greatest food exporting areas in the world. I mean, Ukraine has soil very comparable to Iowa and is enormously productive. And yet now they're faced with starvation in Ukraine. So as opposed to feeding the rest of the world, they're going to have to have some help just to avoid starvation in some of those cities.
4: Absolutely. So if you look at their current supply and demand of products in Ukraine, they've shipped about between a half and two-thirds of their grains out of the country already. Wheat and corn is the most major ones. So there was a little bit left there, and they're trying to figure out the means to get that up into Poland or into some other areas where they could use it to feed some of the Ukrainians. But Right now, talking to Executive Director Beasley and his staff, a lot of those people are moving on into Europe. And so this is going to be a burden for Europe along the way, trying to feed this additional 2 million or 3 million people that are migrating out of the country.
1: And somebody pointed out that the shipping problems, because historically the Black Sea has been a major center of ships that carry dry goods, that we've actually further compounded the whole logistics chain because you now have so many ships that are empty or they can't go through the Russian conflict in order to land. So we're going to have an even further complication in terms of the cost of shipping and the availability of shipping.
4: Yeah, to bring that to the reality of today, I spoke to a Ukrainian farmer a few days ago, farms over 100,000 hectares, so that's nearly a quarter million acres he operates in Ukraine and they deliver a lot of their grain directly to the ports and the word is that they're getting is that they will not be shipping anything out of those ports until this war is over but in the meantime they don't even know if they can produce a crop this year you know he says the banking system isn't functioning all of his staff is left to fight the war for ukraine against the russians he's unable to source the fertilizer he needs to grow crop He has Russian tanks going across his fields where he's got a wheat crop that will be harvested in a few months, and he can't even plant a crop. So, you know, we're going to lose a lot of production that used to be online to balance the scale around the world and the food that we needed to feed the entire world. And now I'm afraid it's going to tip too far. And that's why I made my statement about this could be worse than Arab Spring in 2010 and 12.
1: You know, people talk a lot about the price of gasoline because in the U.S., that's the most visible single thing that we do in terms of paying directly out of our pocket. But if I understand it correctly, the futures projection for wheat is actually a bigger jump than the projection for gasoline.
4: I wouldn't doubt it. You know, if you look at trend lines, wheat tends to trade in that 4 to $4.50 range, maybe up to $5 once in a while. It's trading at $13 today. Now, it's watching the headlines. It sees us negotiating where Zelensky and Putin are having some negotiations. But the reality is just as soon as that's over with and we go back to battle, we know that wheat price will continue to accelerate up. So we've got a supply-demand issue that's going to affect the world. And let's hope that we can see peace sometime soon. But I'm not that optimistic.
1: How much is the rise in the price of wheat, which will be translated into you know, cereals and bread and a whole range of products. How much is that a function of the general inflation rate, which has really jumped dramatically in the last year? And how much of it is a unique function of a supply problem caused by the war? Prior
4: to the war, we'd seen increases in prices where we've seen a lot of commodities up from 20 to 25% in value, some upwards over 30%. So you look at the basic cost on a commodity was up that much at that point in time. Now we've moved it up another few dollars. So like I said, we're trading at 3x the value. We're looking at that. We're also looking at oil. For every $10, oil goes up per barrel of price. We know that it increases inflation by half of 1%. We used to be trading at $60, $70 range, and now we're well over $100. So this is all inflationary. And the thing is, Speaker, this affects those that can least... Afford it more than anybody else. I don't care whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in the Middle East or in Africa. This really affects those that cannot afford high energy prices or high food prices.
1: So it's going to particularly hit the very poor. But as you pointed out, one of the effects of food price increases and gasoline price increases is on the working poor and the middle class. And that led to a huge amount of unrest the last time it happened. And so we could well be looking forward to a year or two where all around the planet there is a really high level of unrest because people are in pain. They're walking out to the local store or to the local market, and they can't afford it. That leaves them feeling angry, and it leaves them feeling that their government is both failing them and cheating them.
4: Government has failed us on our energy policy. We need to make sure we start growing here again and have access to the energy that we have underneath our feet, to make sure that we can live the lives we need. And like I've mentioned many times, we need to get back to an American first policy. We need fertilizer plants back in the United States. We need to drill again, and we need access to that natural gas. and. Like I said, this is gonna affect Americans. This is gonna affect people around the world. But one of the bigger concerns we have is probably the mass migration we could see in Africa if we're not able to feed the populations throughout the Sahel and some of the areas where there's a lot of extremism taking place. And we know that there's a direct tie between food security and our own national security and that of our allies and friends around the world. So this is another risk that's real And it's going to happen soon.
5: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
3: work.
1: And I think people don't realize how much sub-Saharan Africa has changed over the last 50 years. I mean, at current projected rates, Nigeria, by the end of the century, may have the same population as all of Western Europe. So the number of people who potentially could be in migration patterns is truly staggering.
4: It is. You know, I know right now in Eastern Europe, we've probably had more people migrating ever since World War II. But then when we look, like you said, in the Sahel of Africa, you know, Nigeria, they say will be the third largest country, as you just stated. And this is where conflict resides so oftentimes. We saw it in our many trips throughout Africa while serving as ambassador there in Rome, that when people are hungry, they migrate. And when they migrate, they get caught up in extremist activities, illicit gun trade, illicit drug movement, and worse, get involved in human trafficking. So... Our need, as Secretary Pompeo said many times, was to make sure that we had a food-secure world, especially in those areas that were unable to meet their own needs.
1: I remember several conversations you and I had in Rome. Could you explain how wrong the Europeans are in their approach to all of this and how much they're actually making it all worse?
4: Yeah, I would say this, that the Europeans are very ideological in their views of food systems, and we tend to be more pragmatic. If you look at the EU Green Deal, their farm-to-fork initiative, they want to reduce fertilizer consumption 50%, pesticides 40%. They want to return another 10% to natural habitat. That's all well and good. We have a lot of same goals in the United States. We're reducing the use of fertilizer. We're reducing the use of pesticides on an active ingredient amount per acre. But the reality is the outcome of the system that they're promoting in Europe will take them from being a net exporter to a net importer. But the reality is they've been going across the continent of Africa trying to sell this farm-to-fork initiative and saying, if you want to trade with Europe, if you want to be a part of our food system, you need to produce food in the manner that we require you to produce it. Well, we know this hasn't worked in Europe, it hasn't worked in Africa, and it does little to solve our food security issues around the world.
1: Doesn't the European approach to agriculture actually dramatically reduce productivity?
4: It does. When you look at the Farm to Fork Initiative, we know it's going to reduce, in Europe alone, 7% their productivity. We know if it is deployed around the world, we know it's going to reduce it somewhere around 14 to 15%. On top of that, it's going to increase prices of food nearly 87%. Who can afford that? I say this oftentimes. The system that's being promoted in Europe, the EU Green Deal Farm to Fork Initiative, is an indulgence of the rich. It's indefensible scientifically, and most importantly, it's indefensible morally. It is a crime against humanity.
1: So in effect, to the degree that the European Union is imposing their version of a Green New Deal, they actually are forcing African countries that want to export to Europe into adopting policies which reduce the total productivity of the local agricultural system.
4: Absolutely, and that's some of the work I'm doing today. Is trying to work in a number of those African nations, bringing in some different production models, working with the private sector to try to increase productivity in some of these places that could be the breadbasket for the continent of Africa and really change the ability of that continent to feed itself and maybe part of the world.
1: Well, and that may be accelerated by the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I was looking that Russia and Ukraine actually counts for 80% of Egypt's imports of wheat. I have no idea where the Egyptians are going to turn to fill that big a gap.
4: You know, I know right now, Russia, even though they're supposed to be embargoed on their wheat, China was without letters of credit taking on some of their wheat. Now, is that replaced some Australian wheat going into Egypt? Our global grain traders are pretty nimble. They've got solid data systems. They know where supplies are at. I'm guessing that they're trying to address this issue in the best that they can where they're allowed to have that free flow of trade. So Egypt's got a problem, Lebanon's got a problem, and Yemen and, of course, the World Food Program, nearly 70% of their wheat came out of that Black Sea port and went into Africa. But now it's not functioning. It's not going to happen. It's broken.
1: When they say that Russia is currently trading wheat and oil without the traditional letters of credit in terms of dealing with China, What does that mean?
4: Well, you know, typically when you have a trade between two different nations, the buying country will issue a letter of credit to support that purchase of that grain. Well, somehow you can even go online and look at the ships moving in and out of the Black Sea region, and you can see some of them, if you trace them very long, they're still moving into China with that wheat. So China took off all the import tariffs on wheat, and they continue to function with those markets. So without a letter of credit just knowing that they're going to pay for it because they need it. They're going ahead and continuing to ship.
1: Is there an advantage to China to not issue a letter of credit, or does it allow them to sort of pretend they're going along with the embargo while they keep buying the wheat?
4: I think it lets them pretend that they're going along with embargo.
1: Okay, because I have to confess, I read that and I didn't quite know exactly how the system works in that sense. I mean, one of the things that's very striking is... And I think almost nobody understands this who's outside your profession, the extraordinary complexity of the world food system, the amount of information that flows back and forth every single day, and how really sophisticated and competent the best of the traders are at figuring out where to buy, where to sell, how to move it, what the transportation system's like. I mean, isn't this really one of the most sophisticated systems on the entire planet?
4: a lot of people don't understand that the food system on an annual basis is valued at nearly seven trillion dollars in the united states alone it's nearly 1.4 trillion dollars there's a lot of work that goes before that product gets on the shelf of a grocery store or a farmer's market or in that consumer's house so there's a lot of people involved in that system. There's a lot of people who would like to disrupt that system. They think they have a better idea of producing everything locally and at home and a circular economy. But the reality is we have a well-functioning system. We have a lot of people that are involved in the trade that make sure that places around the world don't go hungry. Places that can afford to buy and can buy are able to access the food products that they need.
1: It's amazing, and I've really enjoyed the conversations we had when you and Clista were serving together. In Rome, and I really appreciate your doing this. Kip, I want to thank you for joining me. I think Russia's war on Ukraine is something we're going to be dealing with for a long time, and the second and third order effects are much greater than people realize. And I think that we have to recognize that there are going to be real disruptions in the world market and in the food supply chain. And you're one of the people who understands all this and who's involved in it and who cares about it. And I just want to say, as a citizen, Thank you for your service to our country as ambassador to the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture. And thank you for spending the time with me today because you do understand all this. And I think it helps all of our listeners get a better understanding both of the importance of agriculture and of the complexity of agriculture and of the kind of disruptions and effects we're likely to see in the near future. So Kip, I really thank you for taking the time to educate the rest of us.
4: Thank you, Speaker Gingrich. Look forward to seeing you again soon.
1: Thank you to my guest, Ambassador Kip Tom. You can read more about the global food supply chain and Tom Farms on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeart Media. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
3: We
2: Zumo Play.